The following program is sponsored by Fairly Spiritual on KCIS. Hey, this is Pastor Doug Bursch, and you're listening to the Wednesday edition of the Fairly Spiritual Show. Today's show is specifically for pastors who pastor churches of 200 people or less. If you pastor 210 people, you can still listen. In fact, you can listen if you pastor any size church or if you're just involved in ministry. I want to talk about how we can lose our ministry focus or we can actually lose our ministry identity because of all the expectations that are put on us. Today, I'm going to look at what we should focus on when we minister the gospel on today's Fairly Spiritual Show. Don't miss it. It's for you. Nothing in this world could separate me from your love. No mountain high or valley low, where you wouldn't go to share your love with me. Well, thank you for listening to the fairly spiritual show. This is the Wednesday edition. We do a Wednesday edition on podcast, uh, and then we also have a Friday edition that's on the radio. I love it when you listen to the show and give us feedback. Uh, You can text the show through this number, 360-818-4513. If you listen to something and you're like, hey, that's a great idea. I appreciate you saying that. Then please text me and let me know. 360-818-4513. That's 360-818-4513. You can also find out more information about my book, The Community of God, and past podcast, and how to subscribe to the show by going to our website, fairlyspiritual.org. That's fairlyspiritual.org. And yes, your donations keep the show on the air when it comes to radio. And uh, we're just a small organization here. When I say organization, it's basically me just putting these shows out. So if you could donate, that would be huge. We had someone donate $25 last week. That matters. That's important. So please donate. Go to fairlyspiritual.org. That's fairlyspiritual.org and donate. It really does make a difference. So on today's show, I want to talk about a very important issue. Now, I'm not trying to be a negative person. But I struggle with the church growth movement and, frankly, with a lot of church assessment culture, a lot of conference church conference culture, uh, things that are out there trying to help pastors and help churches. I understand that the intentions might be good, but the reality is we have so many books on church leadership, church growth, church assessment, that what happens is pastors become full of expectations. People have expectations upon them, but in that context, they lose who they are, or they lose an understanding of who they are, or they constantly feel like they have to defend who they are against the expectations of others. It reminds me of a story. I went to a conference uh, where they were repeatedly talking about how our denomination was uh, declining, which is a common story among many denominations, specifically if you're in America. And so they were showing the data. A speaker got up there, and I think it was their job to kind of scare us straight or something to tell us that things are going bad and we need to you know, change our ways. But here we are collectively in the room, and the data was showing that our denomination is declining, and a successful pastor with a growing church is up there telling us a very large church, I might tell you, a very huge church, a church that is an anomaly, an exception to most churches in the world, not just in our denomination, but he was up there and giving us the example of what a church should be and saying, basically, in very nice ways, 
you know, we need to turn this around, and uh, the church is declining, and the way to turn this around is we all need to plant another church. And church planting is a great thing. I have nothing against church planting. Good thing, positive thing. We should facilitate church planting. I'm all for spending money, resources, time, energy, conferences on promoting church planting. However, what I'm not for is taking my vision and placing it on someone else in just a generic, general, legalistic way. And whether he intended to do this or not, what he had us do next was something that I found a little disconcerting. We all had these little anointing oil things in our hands, and he said, I want you to go around and anoint people around you. Uh, and, and it was basically put in this way, anoint them to be fruitful for church planting which I don't know if that's necessarily how anointing goes, but we were to go to the people around us and to anoint them with oil so that their churches could be more fruitful and so that their churches could plant other churches. Now, it's one thing to say so that we could be part of church planting movements, that we could partner with other churches to plant churches, but it was a very specific thing that if we're going to grow as a movement, if we're going to do what God has called us to do, that everyone needs to embrace this as their goal, as their church. And no matter how maybe theologically sound that argument might have been, it basically became a legalistic requirement for everyone in the room. And that is what legalism is. It can be a personal conviction from someone becomes legalism when that personal conviction, even if it's rooted in theological convictions, even if it's rooted in personal experience, if a personal conviction is then projected on others and saying, I've had this personal encounter with God that I can back up with scripture and I've been doing these things and you need to do these things too. The moment you say you need to do these things and you place it on the other person without them having their own personal relationship with God, their own discovery in scripture, their own encounter with God, their own confirmation in their own context in their own ministry setting, within their own gift settings, until they have that, if they don't have that, you're basically just becoming a legalistic person and putting a law on them. Legalism is basically having an intermediary between you and God. It's the difference between a holiness and legalism. Holiness is God encounters me, or I encounter God, and I realize I must live a holy life. You know, I encounter God, and God says, don't drink anymore. And so I don't drink anymore because God tells me not to drink. Legalism is God tells me not to drink, and then I turn to you and I say, you can't drink either. See, I'm the intermediary now, and it's not someone following God. It's someone following Doug's rules or Doug's testimony. That's legalism. And holiness can turn to legalism so quickly, just one generation. And something really beautiful, let's say like church planting or even church growth, can turn to legalism when there's an intermediary in place. And that's what usually happens with these conferences and with these books uh, and with these well-intentioned sermons is there's an intermediary who takes their testimony and then projects it on everyone else and says, I plant churches, you should plant churches. Our church grew, your church should grow. We do this system, you should do that system. I found this system from God, so this system must be your system as well. So it's not that the system that person found wasn't from God. It's not that that person isn't doing something incredibly holy and sacred. It's that they take their holy experience with God and they project it on someone else. The moment you project it on someone else and it becomes a system for someone else to do, it becomes legalism. I remember after we had that service uh, that I went and saw a friend of mine who'd been working so hard in the context of his church, just working so hard with 
complex situations, turning around a church, working in a very complex situation. And I could see in his eyes, because he greatly valued the speaker, that he felt torn, that he was doing so many good things, but he wasn't at that moment church planting. That wasn't on the radar. And I could see he was like, well, I was talking with him and he was like, you know, I'm thinking maybe we should start church planting. And what I felt like was that maybe you should not start church planting. Maybe that's the last thing you should do as you're already doing way too many things. He was already extending himself in this new ministry position in ways that were beyond anything you could even ask from a pastor, working at a level that was really amazing, amazing, powerful, powerful things happening. Yet he goes to this conference and here's someone that he loves, projects something else that he must do, and now he has a weight on himself that if I'm really going to be a pastor, then I need to start a church planting movement as well. And I could see it in his eyes, that weight, that instead of leaving the conference with a freedom to pursue the things God had already placed on his heart, he left the conference with another expectation. And that is so often what happens when we're trying to resource people and help people. Instead of helping them and resourcing them, we just put another uh, we, another plate to spin in the air. We just put a, another expectation upon them. We put another law that they, they need to fulfill. We put another example that they must follow. And so I want to get into this. And, and some people might think, Doug, you're being too harsh and you're being too critical. But, but I kind of want to swing the pendulum in the other way because what I have found is it is sin to discourage another pastor when they're pursuing their dreams. And we don't take this seriously enough. And often we come in and we, we bring someone to resource pastors and to help pastors. And they, they come in with these strong visions and dreams. And they say, you need to do this and you need to do that. And there's some pastor in the congregation or at the conference, who's just barely making it, who's been trying very hard to pursue the dreams that they believed God put on their heart. And instead of someone speaking life into the dreams that are in their heart, they come into the room and someone places more expectations upon them. And I think uh, our leadership development should be far more about hearing the dreams in the pastors of small churches instead of placing more expectations upon them. Valuing the work that is already being done then belittling that work and placing more expectations upon them. I think it should be far more about listening to what those pastors are doing and platforming what those pastors are doing than talking down to them. And so this is very important to me. So what I'm going to do with today's show is I'm going to look at ways for you, if you're a pastor of a smaller church, a church of 200 or less, of ways for you to rediscover how you have uniquely been designed to pastor the church that you've been called to, to uniquely understand your giftings and your calling, and to discover who you are. Not what people want you to be, but who you are in Christ. More to come. Hey, thanks for listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. It matters that you listen and that you share the show with others. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, go to fairlyspiritual.org and donate today. That helps greatly. You can also text our show, 360-818-4513. I love getting your text, 360-818-4513. And I'd love it if you'd pick up my book. It's geared towards ministers and pastors. It's about why we need the church, why we need the body of Christ. It's called The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor by Douglas S. Birch. The Community of God. Most importantly, could you pray for me 
This is a faith step. We're trying to build a better dialogue in a frequently bitter world, and your support matters greatly. All right, thanks for listening to today's show. I'm gearing today's show primarily to pastors of churches of 200 or less. Uh, If you have a church of 210, you can listen. In fact, of any size, you can listen. But particularly to pastors of smaller churches, what I've found, we live in a culture that's continually saying, you're not enough. You need to do something else. And so I found pastors who are experiencing burnout, who are incredibly unsatisfied with their positions, who are unsatisfied with their calling, who are miserable. And we're making miserable pastors. Our conferences are making miserable pastors. Our denominations are making miserable pastors. Our church growth literature is making miserable pastors. And it's also making it that people don't want to become pastors. Uh, We're creating a culture of misery. And we're also having it where pastors are losing touch of why they became pastors. And they're losing themselves in the process. And so today I just wanted to give some advice that I give to pastors on ways to rediscover who they are. And all of this, I hope, is rooted not in me placing my expectations on you, but in me giving you permission to do what God has always put on your heart, what was there from the beginning. Uh, Hopefully this advice will help you to, to rediscover what is there. I don't want to place on you my expectations but I want to give you permission to pursue what is already in your heart. So much of what we're doing is we're, we're placing, you know, what is the issue? You know, Saul's armor on, on David, right? We're, we're, we're placing expectations on people that they're not supposed to have. And I just feel like right now I'm talking to someone right, right now. I'm just, I, I believe in the prophetic. There's someone listening right now. You're just worn out, and, and you're at the point of tears. And you're trying hard. You're trying to implement things. This is not to make you feel condemned. It's not bad that you've been trying to do. You had council members tell you to do certain things, and you had leaders and friends, and you're, you're trying in a humble way to serve others. You're serving certain programs. I'm not belittling that. You understand that. I understand with a sincere heart you've been trying to do what others have said would be a good thing to do. You've implemented programs and structures and policies uh, because others have said that would be a good thing to do. But in the process, you're losing yourself. You you, you don't know who you are or you don't like who you are. You don't like going to the church that you pastor. And there's a part of you that's missing in the church. You're like, I'm missing. You don't know how to contend for your own voice. So I want to give you just some ways to rediscover you in the ministry process. And these might be labeled numbered, but I don't know. I might lose track of my numbering, but we're going to start with a number. Number one, make ministry personal. I think some of us are uncomfortable with that, but I want to encourage you to make ministry personal. And particularly even in a smaller church, in smaller churches, we're often expected to do everything. And in many ways, you have to do everything. You, you can't, you know, find someone to do each thing in the church. So you're, you're doing the plumbing some days and you're working on the roof some days. And I get it. I understand that. I pastor a normal size or a small church. You'd like it if there was a ministry and somebody leading that ministry for every area of the church. But that's just not the reality. But what happens sometimes 
when you're doing everything is you become so generic in doing everything that you you don't no longer have time for what is unique to you or you're afraid to contend for what is unique to for you what gives you life you're afraid to give time in your schedule for what is truly you and here's just an example there's some pastors who love to study the word of god and this is going to be controversial to some people but there's some pastors who just love to study the Word of God. If they could, they would just spend all day in the Scripture, you know, looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and cross-referencing things and doing word studies and sentence diagramming and looking at the archaeology and getting out maps. And If they could, they would spend all their time just doing that. They would spend hours and hours studying the Word of God. And some of you know pastors like that. I have a pastor friend of mine who just spends hours and hours studying. He writes these elaborate sermon notes every sermon. That's what he does. Now, guess what? Because he does that, he's not as available or desirous of just hanging out with people. He's not the kind of guy who would like to just meet with people for coffee, just hang out for no reason. If if he could choose, if he could choose between just studying the Word of God and getting deep into Scripture versus just hanging out with people at Starbucks, guess what he would choose? He would choose studying the Word of God. Now, some of you are already making judgments about what is the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do, but I'm going to show you my hand, and I don't think one thing is right and one thing is wrong, even when it comes to studying the Word of God. Now, that's one kind of pastor. Now, I have another pastor friend who just loves people. Now, I know we all love people, but he's someone who loves people. I remember him telling me once, you know, if I could, I would just hang out with people all day long. I would just fill up my schedule with meeting after meeting after meeting at the local Starbucks for lunch, for coffee, of just hanging out with people and talking with them and asking how they're doing. He's a people person. He loves talking with people, asking them about their life praying with them, giving them counsel, listening to them, being a spiritual advisor, being a spiritual listener, just going fishing with them, going hunting, doing whatever, just being with his congregation. Now, for this pastor friend, when it comes to working on his sermon, he does not like spending a lot of time on his sermons. He spends time on his sermons. But if he had a choice, you could say, you can spend all day working on your sermon, or you can spend all day hanging out with people in your church, having fun at a shooting range, or, or you can spend all day you know, going out fishing with the guys, or you can spend all day, to, I'll tell you right now, he's going to pick the relationship over, over studying the Word. Now, who's doing the right thing? Who's being the true pastor? Well, in my opinion, they both are. They're both uniquely being what God has called them to be. Now, we understand that both of those people, their strengths are expressed in the story I've just shared there, right? One has a gifting when it comes to studying, to teaching, to whatever that issue is, that professorial, that's a hard word to say, whatever that is, you know, they they have that gifting to, to get deep into the word and to share things and to bring the scripture alive in ways that other people just don't bring it alive. They're... That's their gifting. The other person has a gifting to abide with people and to connect with people that is just amazing. 
those are natural giftings and they're also spiritual giftings. We don't really know where they even connect, but they're truly unique to the individuals that God created. Now, the reality is they also need to work on the things that aren't that strong. So my friend who, you know, studies the word, he's got to hang out with people. And my friend who uh, likes to hang out with people, he's got to learn to study the word. But here's the reality. In a smaller church, we're busy doing so many things that sometimes we get afraid to contend for the things that give us life. And I want to encourage you today, if you're lost, today, if you're confused, today, if you're really struggling with ministry, could you contend for the things that give you life? If you need to study the word more, if that's something that uniquely gives you life, then would you make ministry personal? And would you maybe meet with your council or meet with your board or meet with whoever's in control in your church or meet or stand before the church and say, I need to be able to pursue the things that give me life. And what gives me life is to go deep into the word of God. And so I'm going to be spending more time reading the word, studying the word, maybe pursuing an advanced education in the word, getting further education, whatever that means to you, I need to give more life to this, more time to this, more energy to this, because this is who I am in Christ. For others of you, it might be, I need to spend time with people, and I'm spending so much time in meetings and doing maintenance and doing administration and working on the books, that it's killing me. I need to spend time with people. And so I have to have my schedule change. I have to spend, I know others won't understand and they might judge it as secondary, but it's important for me. I need to be able to go out and spend time with the guys. I need to spend time with the church. I need to be able to have a Starbucks account where I can just go have coffee with people and have fellowship and use my giftings. You can figure out how that's implemented, but it's crucial that you start making ministry personal. I often tell young pastors, make ministry personal. Have people reject the core of who you are. Say, this is who I am. This is what I love. The danger is if you don't make ministry personal, if you begin to do what everybody else wants and you begin to just, ah, you know, I'm just going to bury that. I'm not going to do what I want. I'm not going to do what gives me life. I'm not going to do what gives me joy. You'll become soulless. You'll become dry. You'll become weary. At some level, you must trust that God made you that way. He made you to love studying the word or to love being with people or, or whatever you need in order for life to come to you and for you to be a joyful, happy, content pastor. Maybe joy for you is I can't have as many meetings. I know this church wants to have meetings, but I'm not going to survive here with this many meetings. And so if you want me to be your pastor, we're going to have to have half as many meetings you're going to have to decide how that happens. But make ministry personal. Have people reject the core of who you are. Number two, embrace who you are, not what you aren't. Embrace who you are, not what you aren't. So many of these church growth books, so many of these conferences, so much of the advice we give, they're constantly telling us what we should become. And so often we're trying to do stuff that we're not. 
And in smaller churches, I see this all the time. You know, a, a healthy church needs to have all these different programs, right? A healthy church needs to have all these different ministries. A healthy church needs to have this kind of video ministry and this kind of music ministry and this kind of... And so I'll find smaller churches trying to do all these elaborate things. But that's not the strength of a smaller church. Now, if you want to become a bigger church and that's your goal and that's who you are, then you go ahead and do what you're called to do. But I would encourage you to embrace who you are. I'll use an example of this. Uh, and with schooling, I've taken schooling where I went to the University of Washington and I was in classes that had like 300 people in the room. But I've also been in schooling in cohorts where there were maybe seven or eight people in the room. And one of the most annoying things is when you have a professor who treats the room the same, whether there's 500 people in the room or whether there's eight people in the room. Depending upon how many people are in the room, the communication should be different, right? You shouldn't communicate the same to eight people in the room than a thousand people in the room. I want to encourage you with this. What's the size of the congregation you minister with? Is it 50 people? Is it 20 people? Is it 100 people? I was in a class, a cohort, where there were seven people. I was seven or eight people. And the professor had us around a table. It was like a conference table. And he stood in front and he began to lecture. And it was a long lecture. It was one of those Saturday classes that went for, I don't know, three, four hours, seemed longer than that. And he began to lecture us. But as he lectured, he lectured as if it was a hall of 300 or 400 people. He didn't look anyone in the eyes. He just lectured on and on and on. At one point, I looked around and I realized that none of the seven or eight of us were even looking at him. None of us were making eye contact. None of us were showing interest in the lecture. Many of us weren't taking notes. You could see because we were so close together that some were just doodling on the paper and just bored out of our minds. Yet he was just going on as if it was this large lecture hall. It was really quite ridiculous. I'd like you to see the strength of your room. So often we see the weakness. We're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't have that many people here. We're not what we should be. See the strength of your room. If you have 20 people, 40 people, 100 people, see the strength of your room and begin to work on the strengths of your room. In a smaller room, you can do things in a smaller room that you can't do in a larger room. In a smaller room, you can really make eye contact with about every single person in the room. You can have a genuine connection with each person. You can move around. Now, if you're videotaping and stuff, that might be harder, but you can actually move around. This could be one of your goals this week. You could say, you know what? I can make personal connection with every person in this room. You can't do that when it's a larger church. I can do that here. So use the strength of your room, what you are, not what you're trying to become. Look around, walk around, look people in the eyes. Maybe people you know, you can touch their arm or you can you know, smile at them. You can mention them by name because there's enough people in the room that know each other that you can mention them by name. You can use the strength of the room. There are pastors who don't know half the people in the room because the church is so large and so disconnected. You know those people. You can use the strength of the room when it comes to interaction. 
When a church gets larger, you can't have as much interaction because you can't trust who's going to say what and when. But when you have a smaller church, you can have more positive interaction because you can look around and see, okay, I know who's here and there's, okay, it looks like there's two or three visitors. And so you can say something like, does anyone have a thought on that? And if you're worried about the visitor saying something, then you can do this. You can say, I'd like it, anyone who's a regular attender here, do you have thoughts on how we could implement that? And you can ask a question and you can get feedback from people. You can say, anyone who regularly attends here, uh, can you give a testimony for how God has helped you when it comes to praying over a long period of time or whatever the illustration for the sermon is? Or if you have enough relationship, you can call on people that you know, or you can tell them before that you'll call on them. It's amazing what you can do when you call upon the strengths that are in the room. You can use the intimacy of the room. But so often I see us, you know, churches, I visit lots of churches where we're pretending to be something we're not. We're pretending to be this large expression. We're pretending to be this big expression. And what we do is we just wear ourselves out. You're trying to put on a giant Christmas thing, and you know maybe you just embrace the fact that this is an intimate setting. So let's make it more like we're all gathered around the Christmas tree, and someone's going to share a story, and we're going to share some time together, and maybe light a candle and not burn the place down, and sing some a cappella Christmas songs, and look each other in the eye, and say something sincere and true to each other. Here's one of the problems with sincerity, and we don't we don't talk about this, is people actually don't want to connect. And we don't we don't mention this enough, but a lot of the larger churches are structured on distance and disconnect. I, I recently went to a conference where they started the conference where they turned all the lights off and they flashed a big light at the singer, and the singer sang the opening lyrics to a song with no words up on the screen, and we were all supposed to listen to her. And I guess that was supposed to be really powerful. But what I realized is that's really a large church mentality. A large church mentality is is often, and it's not always the case, but it's often we, we separate the congregation from themselves. We all focus our attention on one person who does the performance for us. There's an isolation. We turn down the lights and we just kind of get isolated in our own head and it's just me kind of participating with the, the person who's singing or the person who's preaching. But when we started the conference that way, I thought how distancing it was. It distanced me from the people in my row, from being able to sing the song. It just immediately, I was distanced. I was distanced. Excuse me, it's hard to say. Distanced from everyone around me. When you're in a smaller congregation, you can create intimacy, but sometimes people don't want intimacy. They don't want to be connected with the people around them. They don't want to see the people in their row. They don't want to know the people in their congregation. So they like it that the lights are turned down for worship. It's not just about I want to connect with God. It's I don't want to connect with the people around me. I don't want to have to identify with the humanity of the person next to me who who looks kind of gross and looks kind of unclean and looks like they come from a difficult area and they might talk to me and they might have expectations. So I can just dim down the lights and just focus in on the entertainment. So maybe we don't want to look at the strengths in our room, but if you don't mind that, then look at the strengths in your room. Create a setting where you can have time where people can greet each other and talk to each other and connect with each other. Embrace who you are. 
In some ways, it could be like, you don't even have to have a good message if you can connect with each person. If each person knows that you love them. I know I often don't do this. I'm sometimes just preaching and disconnected. But man, if I can just make an intentional connection, this is often what I pray about. Okay, Doug, regardless of the sermon, don't just hide out. Don't just walk around and not connect with people. Try to have an intentional conversation with as many people as possible. I know that sounds a little legalistic for some of you, but you know what I mean. In a smaller church, that can be a wonderful goal. So make ministry personal. Embrace who you are, not what you aren't. And here's another one, and I just want to throw this out. Let God defend you. Let God defend your ministry. You know, I see so many assessment things that are about, you need to find out where you're weak and then get stronger. And it's almost like this. It's like, what hand do you write with? Well, I write with my left hand. Okay, that means you're weak with your right hand. So I want you to learn to write with your right hand. And so we spend all our time learning to write with our right hand. And if you learn to write with your bad hand, that writing is never going to be as good as it is with your dominant hand. I think a lot of that stuff is just foolishness. The reality is you're not going to be good at everything. There are some things you're good at. You have some dominant giftings, and you need to learn what those are. Structure ministry around those things, your dominant giftings. Yes, the things you're not good at, you got to find other people who can do that. And you also got to say, hey, you know, our church just doesn't do that. We just don't do that. It's okay. Let God defend you. Let God defend the dreams of the church. Let God defend the worth of the church. I don't want our church to survive because we are really good at managing things. I don't want our church to survive because I was really good at convincing people through the right words and the right programs and the right systems. I want our church to survive because people experienced the presence of God, heard the voice of God, and united because God is alive. I want God to defend the worth of our congregation and the worth of the ministry I do. Let God defend the worth of your ministry. Now, I hope this makes sense, but I just believe that I'm, I'm talking to someone where you're in a place, and this is hard. You might be in a structure where if you talk to your church and you say, I need to do this, they'll say, well, we don't want you here. And you have to decide, what do you want to do the rest of your life? Do you want to pastor in a church where you can't be who you are? Or do you want to do ministry that is a true expression of who you are? You have to decide that. For me personally, I could not pastor in a place that didn't accept the core of who I am. To me, that's not ministry. Ministry is God authentically moving through my authentic self. So you have to decide that. Are you going to minister for a long time? And if you're going to minister for a long time, then why not put yourself in a place where you can authentically minister being your authentic self? So are you ministering as your authentic self? Are you being allowed to truly give your best time and energy to the things you love, to express the giftings that are truly you? Are you truly doing ministry that has value to the context in the room, or are you trying to be something else? And are you willing to allow God to defend you? Are you willing just to say, this is what I believe the Holy Spirit's called us to do. This is who I am. I'm asking you to accept this. But if you don't accept it, I'm still going to do it. Are you going to let God defend you? 
Or are you going to let others defend you? And that's only a question you can ask before the Lord. I know in a lot of settings I'm considered a fool. I, I know in a lot of my own denominational settings I'm not respected because of the size of my church. I know that. But I, I, I have to just be true to the calling that God's put on my heart. Because I've seen pastors of large churches that are immoral and terrible and pastors of large churches that are wonderful and precious and beautiful. And Size of church has nothing to do with spiritual integrity. It has zero to do with it. So I've seen pastors of small churches that are some of the wisest, most amazing people I've ever met and some of the most terrible people I've ever met. So all that stuff is just garbage. It's just complete crap. What matters is, are you pursuing what God has placed on your heart? I want to give you permission. God created you uniquely to be a unique expression of his will on earth. You're free. Go do what God has called you to do. Be what God has called you to be. And let God defend the worth of your ministry. Thanks for listening. All right, you've been listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. I am Pastor Doug Bursch. I'd love it if you'd pick up my book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. It's particularly encouraging to pastors who struggle with community. It talks about why we gather together. You can find out more information about that at fairlyspiritual.org. You can text me at 360-818-4513. That's 360-818-4513. And your donations are needed to keep the show on the radio, so go to fairlyspiritual.org. I will see you next time. Enough.